Yeah, apparently on the audiobooks, Brian Jix pronounces it as Gosim instead of Gawasim, and I simply refuse to accept that. Makes, That's not okay. Makes zero sense. I don't think that you can actually, like, demand that of your readers when your readers are supposed to be, like, ten, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so right, it's whatever yeah, your yeah. reader is going to actually read it as, <laughs> because, like... <Yeah. laughs> Children aren't going to be able to as adeptly, phonetically figure these things out as, like, adults could. So, um, I'm just going to go with whatever my 10-year-old brain thought. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, like, you know, growing up, my, my name is Matthew. And so, when I read Redwall, I just pronounced his name as Matthias. Because um, I had never heard the name Matthias before. And that kind of made sense because it was kind of like my name. Yeah. No, I, I remember when I read Redwall, I had just read another book which had a, a Jack character in it. And I was very, very proud that I was pronouncing Brian Jack. Um, oh, yeah. Jack's last name correctly, which yeah. apparently I'm not. So no, no, I think, think you were right, Sam. I think yeah. you were right. And Brian Jakes does not know how to pronounce his own name. I mean, really. if we're going, if he's going to like Americanize his own name, then it's Jaquees. I'm sorry. Well, while we're on the topic of names, we did have uh, some suggestions for what our listeners should be called, and there were some there were some pretty good candidates here. Uh, Woodlanders, uh, the Gwasset, which would be the the Guerrilla Union of Shrews on Twitter, which was pretty funny. Um, Dibbins against Bedtime was a write-in that was cute. Uh, Redheads, which is pretty good, and then my personal favorite was. Wallflowers, which is just it's so nicely layered and I think it's I think it's really nice. I think it's adorable. That's definitely the best one. Alright, wallflowers then. Let's uh let's roll this episode in. Welcome to the Red Wall Podcast. You were left to look at Brian Jakes's works and books in the world of Redwall. Uh, I'm Matthew. I'm Sam. And I'm Millie. And this month we read the second book in this series, Mossflower, which uh, is kind of a well, is is definitely a prequel to the one that that we talked about last month. And yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about here. I think we ought to just. Uh, jump right in. Uh, personally, I I think I enjoy Mossflower even more than I enjoy Redwall. Well, I mean, it's like Jake's figured out how to write a book. Um, <laughs> it was <laughs> <Yes>. so much better. <laughs> like going back and and reading Redwall again, I was like, wait, like I used to think these were like really good, and then upon reading Redwall, like I was, or upon reading Mossflower, I was like, oh yeah, of course, like that. That's the thing that I recall the most. Like, you know, yeah. this is the writing yeah. style that I I remember. Yeah, I, I think he definitely, in Mossfire, there's not only, there's the world building and there's the, the lore that he builds out, but there's also just the techniques that he, that we really see really clearly, I think, in Mossfire that are just very, like, nascent in Redwall. The sort of, like, the meanwhile back at the ranch, we're jumping between these two <laughs> right. fully fleshed out plots for most of the book. And they come together really coherently, which doesn't really happen in Redwall in the same way. No, um, no, like one of the like, yeah, the, one of the plot like the plots don't integrate in the same like perfectly convenient way that they do in Mossflower. Um, yeah, I think Mossflower is just a and, and all of the little parts of it 
are much more like fully realized, I think. Yeah, and some of the wall. some of the things that we were criticizing in Redwall have have sort of uh, crystallized a lot better. Like uh, like the whole size issue. Like may- maybe some of this is retconning a little bit, but also it, there's just not so much confusing. Like, do humans exist in this world? No, it's it, it's it's all been you know rodents this entire time. Yeah, and like like how large are structures? How large are other animals by right. comparison to them? Like, um, I do think it's really interesting the way that like, you know, it, it sort of implied that mice and badgers and large cats and foxes are all roughly the same size ish. You know, they're, yeah. they're bigger. It's, it's referenced that badgers are bigger than mice. Um, but, like then there's just a goose and the goose is the largest thing anybody's ever seen. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, the swan that sails by like uh like a sailing ship or something. Well, yeah, I and uh before we get into too much detail, uh does one of you want to or ch- shall we just do a a quick recap of the plot of this one so that everybody knows kind of what we're going to be referencing as we go along? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Okay, I can try starting us off. I think okay. it, it opens in a really interesting place, which is which it doesn't it doesn't dwell in very long. I don't think it's a place that Jake's generally dwells in, but which is almost this dystopian, um, like this this horrific situation of this family being ruled over by this oppressive by the oppressive um, Verdalga. Verdalga? Verdalga? Yeah, Verdalga. Yeah. Sure. Verdalga. Well, and it's great because it it kicks off sort of. Um, it kind of like the gunslinger, right? Where yeah. it's like the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. You've got uh, Mossflower Country is in the grips of this deep winter. And you've got some warrior figure trudging along with a, an ancient sword strapped to his back. Yeah, it's pure Western is that opening with the, yeah. the with the like the, the mining boss slash landlord slash sure um, slash evil king queen has this small town and their iron fist right. and it's going to take one mysterious stranger and show <laughs> up and show them what's going on. Hell yeah. Yeah. And so he, he shows up and man, yeah, like so, this, uh, so this warrior is, is Martin the warrior and we're, mm-hmm. we're obviously, this is a, a prequel to Redwall. So we're, we're back before Redwall Abbey was ever even founded. And this is the arrival of Martin the warrior to Mossflower country. Yeah. And so, Mossflower is at the start of this is ruled over by the warlord Verdalga, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of setup in this 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 first chapter or so. Um, Verdalga is sick. We soon find out he's being poisoned by his daughter. Murder his, most foul. Yeah, um, and his son, um, who is the actually, as we later find out, the ancestor of our wonderful squire Julian Gingivere. Hell yeah. Um, is actually quite, it's actually interesting because I don't remember, I, I, I hadn't remembered this, but is, is this, is the good cat. Right. Is, is another, yet another good cat from mm-hmm. a family of bad cats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, this, this somewhat less evil warlord is dying and the much more evil warlord is getting ready to take his place. Uh, it opens with this family deciding that enough is enough and they are setting out to join the, the gorillas in the woods. The Corim, the, the, the Council of Resistance in Mossflower. Yes. The the hashtag resistance <laughs> of Mossflower. 
Oh no. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> oh. All right, we already we have an early contender for title of the of the God. episode. No. <laughs> Terrible. Um so yeah, so we so we very so, so the the initial setup doesn't last and very quickly we have like the lines drawn and we have um, Martin captured by the warlord. We have the new warlord coming into power. Um, who the, this, the, the, the queen, Queen Sarmina, um, who very quickly imprisons her kind of wimpy brother, uh, who's obviously a sweetie. And <laughs> we have the Council of Resistance painted in very broad strokes, who's sort of hanging out in the woods, biding their time to make their move. And then we have, we have Gomf, right? Gomf! Gomf, Prince of Mouse Thieves. Oh, he's he's amazing. The 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 Robin Hood of this entire I mean, very much in the form of like the Disney version of Robin Hood, you know, like whistling, singing, uh, has no cares in the world, kind of flits out of danger all the time. Uh, Gonf, who's been apparently keeping everybody alive by just he just goes in and out of the fortress. Uh, what are we calling it? Couture? That's how I was pronouncing yeah, it. Yeah, Couture. Couture's okay. good. It's an yeah. I, so. Yeah, so uh, Gonf ends up getting arrested also and, of course, executes an amazing escape with the help of the Woodlanders. And they all make their way to uh, the mansion, Yeah, it's a giant underground underground badger mansion. Right. And that's where the food comes in. And that's where they, like, all start planning their resistance tactics. Um, And then Martin, like, he hangs out with this badger named Bella, who's like, yeah, my dad was extremely cool and uh, was a great warrior. Um, (laughs) You know what? It would be really awesome to have him here. But he abandoned me and everyone we know, thinking that this place was safe. Uh, A lot of deadbeat dads (laughs) in this story. (laughs) And so they're like, oh, cool, a quest to go find this badger guy. Uh, And so they break off, like, Gonf and... um, Help me out with names. Sorry. <laughs> Martin, and then uh, also accompanied by, by young Diggy. I was going to say Diggy because yeah. they're mm-hmm. underground. Um, because obviously. Yeah, because yeah. obviously. That's the trope. Um, <laughs> and yeah, they uh, that's where the story splits. And so um, there's also the two hedgehogs that decide that they're going to rush into the castle. Uh, and they get captured. And so they have to formulate an escape and... Um, I don't know. Somebody else take over now. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you do have your, there, there's a little, uh, like C plot of these two young hedgehogs who decide like, no, we're going to be warriors just like Martin and Gonf. So why don't we go out patrolling? They get captured and they get thrown in, in prison and then just, you know, as luck would have it, get put on either side of, uh, Gingivere, um, who takes them in and kind of keeps, you know, keeps them safe. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, the, the quorum hires a spy in the form of Chib the Robin. This mercenary um, Robin. Yeah, this, this mercenary <laughs> Robin, uh, who, who is great, and he ends up taking them food and stuff and coordinating the, the eventual breakout. And, Once uh, again, receiving payment in, the, in the, the standard currency of this world, which is candy <laughs> chestnuts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, Martin, Gonf, and Denny have a, a long adventure to take them all the way to 
Salamandistron, the the ancestral home of the badgers, uh, where they do meet the badger, and a sword is forged, and they fight some pirates, and then they bring the ship back right about the time that the Quorum is finally ready to mount their assault on Kotir, and the rest of it is your standard fantasy, uh, you know, armies clashing in battle, and that's uh, that's pretty much how... Mossflower country was freed from from the grips of Kotir and the the evil wildcats. So that's the that's the broad strokes outline of this. And of course, we're gonna dig in a lot uh, to the to the specifics of that story as we go along. And if nobody else takes a lead, I want to talk about pirates. Okay, we can talk about I pirates. Do like okay. pirates. So I. I I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Treasure Island and have read a lot about how pirate ships were run. And in this book, uh, interestingly, uh, like the governmental structures of this book are weirdly uh, monarchical uh, in a way that uh, like even more than in Redwall. Like we have uh, Lady, Lady Amber, uh, who is the queen of the squirrels. In Redwall, the squirrels did not have a queen. They were just squirrels. But apparently, back in time, that was also a monarchy. Um, similarly, the shrews uh, that we meet, they're not the anarchist guerrillas that we met in Redwall. They also just seem to be kind of a tribe under the head of Logalog, who just gets to do whatever he wants. But They haven't had the revolution yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the societies that we didn't get much of a glimpse at uh, in Redwall uh, that comes out a lot in Mossflower is the otters. Um, and the otters, as far as I can tell, or at least as far as I would like to imagine, are organized sort of along the lines of a pirate ship. Um, pirate ships in real history uh, were very democratic. And uh, your captain, or in this case, a skipper, is sort of democratically selected by the crew in order to sort of make the battle calls and, uh, you know, overall just kind of keep the crew safe and in good fighting form. And in Mossflower, that seems to be exactly what Skipper does. Skipper of the Otters doesn't seem to have a whole lot of control over the Otters so much as they're a, like, fully functioning crew, and he just makes the battle calls. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting, especially because later on when they get to Salamandistron, they end up fighting an actual pirate crew who you don't get much insight into. Um, but you get the sense that this is more of a more of a tyrannical, tyrannically run um, pirate crew. Um, they, they talk briefly about how, you know, I've spent some time with those sea rats like they'll go from being nice to each other to just stabbing each other over some you know, some imagined slight or whatever. But uh, I, I liked that, you know, of, of all of the more simplified governmental structures in this, you also have the otters who seem to run like a, you know, like a seafaring crew. And, you know, down to the point of Skipper constantly using, like, nautical terms to describe everything. Yeah. And I think the other pirates are kind of, it's, it's interesting because it's sort of like a Mediterranean like a Mediterranean pirate model are the, right. the, 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 the rats with like gal- with literal galley slaves. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and these, this is like a, this is, this is a galley. It seems, it seems a lot like, um, maybe they came from Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The Mediterranean, the evil Mediterranean rats strike again. Right. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think there's like a lot of there are a lot of monarchies in this. I was just thinking when you were mentioning that because we also have the toads who are a monarchy. Yeah, we have the bats who are a monarchy. Um, or at the very least, like a definitely a they they've got some sort of tribal chiefdom. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sort of the the, the same sort of thing. Um, and then you have, and then the the Salamandastron is effectively also a monarchy. Um, and that you have this line of badgers, which is prophesied to to rule, um, rule over the the hares, right? Uh, so Salamanda Gondor, I think, is the thing. <laughs> yeah, and the and the hares, the hares are kind of interesting too because um, they seem to elect to be ruled over, or it's sort of just foretold. It's just their culture to be, you know, when there's not a badger at Salamandastron, they just. They just keep the fire burning. Um, they just they do the Kenny Loggins thing, and they just kind of watch <laughs> over the forge and yeah. keep it going the whole time until a badger shows up, and then they're like, "Oh, you're you're king of the mountain now." Yeah. But at Brock Hall, I thought that was interesting. How like it doesn't really appear that the ancestral home of badgers, the giant underground mansion, is quite a monarchy so much as it is like an outpost. <laughs> Or like a, uh, yeah. a, a holding of the badgers. And they even say that, you know, before Verdaga and the, the Horde showed up and took over Kotir, that Bella's, what, grandfather was the lord of Mossflower? Right. Um, you know, but then contrary, I think, to what we see in Redwall, which we agreed was something more along the lines of like a liberal monarchy. The quorum seems to work very democratically uh, to the extent of like Skipper and Amber, like break the rules, like, you know, go against orders a couple of times. And there's not really any kind of punishment for that. Well, I mean, the quorum's basically like a confederation of different groups that have representatives. So in a way, it's just it's just like, you know, a militarized republic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, like very, uh, very American Revolution hours. You know, you yeah. got the different groups all coming together, and they basically they all have to work together. I mean, it's it's whatever the whatever that flag is with the snake all cut up, right? Um, <laughs> that, join that or they die. They have to work together or join or die. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much join or die uh, motif going on with that. Luckily. The bad guys are so bad that everybody's going to join up anyway. Yeah, nobody's really pissed off about this at all. <laughs> Even the Robin is has sort of like this begrudging acknowledgement that he he does want them to win. Right. He's not like yeah, he's a mercenary. He's not in it for like a um, not 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 in it for, like for altruistic reasons. But he he knows which side his bread's buttered on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I gotta say I really love all of the sort of. Like third, thinking like like the third side characters, like the characters who aren't sort of good or evil in this, um, but who are sort of adjacent. Okay, like that you have like the eagle, um, you have the pike, yep. you have the robin, you have the eel, even yeah, um, who's great. I love the eel. The eel was very cool. Uh, who's like really cold and intelligent is shown as not this. This is not like a mindless creature. Right. In the way that the pike is, 
like the eel is speaking in these like perfectly constructed sentences and is saying like, yeah, I'm totally aware of this. And like, I'm going to get hungry in a day or so. So if we don't sort something out by then, I will eat you. <laughs> right. But I will be happy to work with you if it helps me eat my, my nemesis, the toads. Right. Um, yeah. The eel bit was great. Yeah, the eels. The eels, lovely. I liked. Uh, I liked Argulor, the the golden eagle, who just kind of is like aged and infirm, but not so aged and infirm that he can't, you know, occasionally like pick up the random ferret or stoat. Um, sort of a sort of this book's answer to Asmodeus the snake, um, but without any kind of uh, real malice to him. He's just, you know, like we talked about last episode, sort of the the reflection of of actual mortality and like nature like natural death in this story well yeah and yeah. then when they like you know displace him in order to be rid of him and sort of like you know casting off um more like primeval instincts perhaps um like in a symbolic manner because then you know at the end of the the story they the um Salamandastrom basically kind of ends and Redwall starts to be like developed as an actual cohabitating universe for all of these different animals that like had already come together in a council. They decided to all live together um, in mm-hmm. this way that was like, you know, otherwise separate before. Um, and so like, you know, I, I love reading into what allegories could possibly be. And I thought that, that was sort of maybe the idea behind bringing in, because it's not like a total death either. It's just a, we're going to move your house without you really noticing, <laughs> you know, of the eagle. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. um, there's no way oh, to actually kill it. <laughs> Doesn't the eagle get killed, though? I, I think oh, the yeah. Eagle... No, the, the, the eagle does. Uh, Melly, I think you're talking about the I'm owl. I'm thinking about the owl. That's uh, what I am. At, yeah. Yeah. At, at a bat mount pit um, that they just they just kind of kick it out of there. And it's been it's been holding the bats back the whole time. Right. Um, yeah. The. The eagle dies when he attacks. Sarmina tricks her mercenary fox Bane right. into going outside wearing the the cloak of the pine marten that the eagle has always wanted to eat. Uh, and the eagle comes down and, and you have this aerial battle where he, he carries the fox up into the air and both of them die kind of midair. Yeah. Tragic. It's it is interesting because again, there's just not because there's still this sort of confused sense of size, which is still <laughs> right. not quite clear. I think in that, like, how big is the, is this? Like a fox-sized fox that's fighting the golden eagle that the golden eagle has picked up is yeah. the golden eagle like relatively way larger than the other critters, which is kind of what I had assumed that it was. It was this was a big creature. Yeah, right. Um, there are some. There are certain animals that appear to be like more titanic than others. Yeah, the eel, the golden eagle, um, certainly the owl at Bat Mount Pit. Um, yeah. The swans. Um, the, oh, yeah, the swans. But then you have, like, the dynamic with the pike and the rat. And again, I love this. This is one of these dynamics that I think comes up more and sort of we, we get, the, we get the, the first example of it in Redwall, which is the, like, kind of super-powered villain. The villain who is not quite on the same level as everyone else. So we had Shadow yeah. mm-hmm. in Redwall, who's kind of like this 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 super rat who has is like incredibly stealthy. And in this one, we have the the Gloomer, which is the like the the, the blind water rat who's yeah. just absolutely terrifying. I was thinking of uh, the Gloomer. Kind of reminded me of that movie Three Hundred, where you see like like the big hulking 
uh, like obviously some kind of mutated like colossus uh, coming out in front of the army. That was that was kind of what he reminded me of. I mean, to the uh, down to the details of having the collar that has all of the different leads on it, so that he doesn't just go berserk on his own army. Yeah, or like a just a bridge troll. <laughs> honestly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, the cave trolls in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. very similar. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how, again, this stuff kind of, it, like, he's he's using all of these, like, classic fantasy tropes within the context of, like, this somewhat, this attempt at, like, a somewhat naturalistic portrayal of animals. Like, right. it, it is kind, he is kind of trying to work out, like, naturalistic reasons why they got this way. It's not just like, yeah, this is sort of a supersized rat. It's like, no, this is this water rat which has been living in the dark and has grown incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, also reminded me of, uh, like, the child in uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. You know, the idea that there's this member of their society that they keep locked away and has this horrible life. Of course, in Omelas, it's sort of like a sacrifice to, you know, make the, the world a nicer place. Whereas in this, they're keeping it in a dungeon just because it's so dangerous. I don't think but... that anybody's walking away from Katir if they ever see that dude, though. They were mostly just like, right. we don't yeah. want to deal with him. Keep him in the basement. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, if totally. Ch- if Omelas was about super soldiers. <laughs> oh, <Right>. no. It's about Janissaries now. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad... I'm glad the gloomer came up because there was a, a theme kind of running through Moss Flower that uh, was not, I think, in Redwall at all. Um, and you see it in, manifested in a couple of different ways in, in Moss Flower, which is the idea of like mental health and disability. So you've got the gloomer who is, I don't know, like probably a product of his environment, but he's clearly gone feral. Um, which is the only time that you see, at least so far in what we've read, the only time that you see uh, a creature that's the same race or species as the other creatures around it um, who has gone completely feral. Um, but then you also have some some interesting, uh, you know, like Ashleg, the, the pine marten, um, has a wooden leg, and you start to wonder, like, I mean... Kotir probably is not ADA compliant, and in fact, they make all of these jokes about how, what a hard time he has getting around. He keeps having to go up to Sarmina's, uh, you know, upper chamber, and it's like him stumping along on this terrible wooden leg of his. Uh, and then you have Sarmina herself, who starts out as just being evil, but over the course of the story, completely breaks down. I mean, like, full paranoid schizophrenia. Um... Yeah, I mean, like, it's, she's just... I mean, she's right, Yeah, is the thing. Is that, is that like, her, her yeah. paranoia is, in, is is justified, right? And that it's, it's it's ultimately, like, building up this very apt death. And, like, yeah, actually, the castle is being flooded. And everyone's like, right. oh, she's she's totally out of it. She's she's losing her mind. It's like, actually, no. Yeah. The, the waters are rising. Uh, well, but she also has those scenes where, like, she goes out in the forest hunting Gingivere. She After Gingivere escapes, she's convinced that he's still out there or possibly mm. even has infiltrated the castle. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, th- like, that... That sort of psychological portrayal is supposed to just, like, augment the idea that, that first of all, she took her throne from her brother by killing her father. So it's, un- like, she unjustly won her seat. But yeah, also to, right. like... It's Hamlet. Yeah. It's, it's Hamlet, basically. <laughs> it's, got, it's Lady Macbeth, yeah. also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and yeah, so like in order to for the narrative to prove more that she's actually completely unworthy of this position, um, she has to have this sort of like paranoid breakdown in which like uh, the environment and her like internal self are fighting with the nature of her position, uh, which manifests in a paranoia that grows worse and worse over time. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's Hamlet yeah, and Macbeth. She's not just. <laughs> She's not just an evil queen. She's an evil, undeserving yeah, queen. Yeah, she's a usurper. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't be in this position. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because the, because Verdaga is not, is not as evil as sort of the other villain villainous leaders we've seen. He's not as, like, immediately sort of sadistic or cruel as, like, Bane is or as Sarmina or Clooney in the last book. Um He's he sort of like acknowledges Martin's warrior spirit and is like, well, you should you know you should not mistreat this man. Nah, he's a warrior. Let yeah. him go. Like you know, what should I yeah. do with him? How will I appear weak if I do X thing? Right. Throw him in the prison to cool his paws for a couple of days, and then we'll you know kick him out of the kingdom and tell him not to come back. Yeah. Yeah. And Sarmina has like none of that. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that like this this world for some reason like the the magic that happens. Uh, it tends to happen, it's so far, it happened to Clooney, like, where he had dreams about how he was going to die. <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. then Sarmina, and it was sort of like, he knew that, like, Jake's had, knew that he had, like, a, a good plot mechanic in the first book, but he didn't actually, like, fully utilize it. And here, like, it actually drives her mad to the point of, like, basically committing suicide accidentally. And, yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting that, like, you know, Maybe there's just something about the Red Ball world that, like, just has to tell the evil people that their time is coming at the end of it. Um, yeah, sure. But also, like, it's it's a device to have some sort of interior life for the the villains themselves without, like, making them sympathetic characters. Yeah, which is great. And I think we all agreed, you know, in Redwall, some of the most interesting chapters are the Clooney sort of internal life chapters. Um, seeing how he plans things and in this again sarmina is a delight to hang out with just as she's coming (laughs) more and more unraveled and uh but as sam points out it turns out she's correct like she's terrified of water and of course the weapon that they end up using against her uh sort of unknowingly um is water to to flood the the fortress out and you know completely destroy kotir yeah i think it's it's really it's, it's interesting because, again, there's, like, a lot of themes of inevitability, and the prophecy is, like, way more explicit in this, right? Like, we have, like, that whole bit at Salamandastron when we see when the the Badger Lord tells Martin, like, here's what's going to happen. Right. Um, and, I'm, and he said, and he, and he, he, he doesn't tell Martin about what we presume is his own death, right? That's, that's what he, that's what he sees in the secret part of the carvings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Jake's again, just totally sidesteps the metaphysics or the reasons or the mechanics <laughs> right. of the prophecy. He's just like, somebody carved these a long time ago. Yeah. They're pretty accurate. So we're just going to go with them. Yeah. Literally <laughs> to the point of saying, nobody knows who carved these. They've Perfect. just always been here. <laughs> They're just <Yeah>. right. Perfect. <laughs> They're just correct. <laughs> um, which is great. Like well, you don't need any more right. than that, particularly when you're, when you're particularly when it's like a kid, right? A kid doesn't 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 need to know like why the prophecy is correct. You're just like it is correct. 
Yeah. I mean, there are definitely kids out there who would be extremely annoying about this, but I was not one of them. (laughs) I assure you. (laughs) Yeah. No, every kid likes The Hobbit. No kid reads The Silmarillion. You you don't need that mm, that back. All right. (laughs) Nerds. Okay. I love the the appendices. Yeah, they were the best part. Um, Yeah. No, I I was a big mechanics. I was a big magic mechanics nerd as a kid. I was like, it's got to be a coherent system. I drew family trees. Like, that was my favorite thing about fantasy novels. (laughs) Well, on the topic of of spirituality, uh, we did have a question sort of answered that we raised in the last episode about, you know, what precisely is the religion of Redwall Abbey? And you have that here in the arrival of the Loamhedge mice who have come from some other some other abbey that apparently got like you know the spanish influenza mm. or something like that and they show up and they they join they join up with uh with the quorum mm-hmm. and abbess germain uh, who was uh, i think we find out was you know the founding abbess of of redwall mm-hmm. abbey um says that so this this is this describes what the lomehedge religion is My mice and I wish to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for allowing us to settle in your beautiful moss flower country. We are a peaceful order of builders and healers. In our own tradition, we are wise in the ways of nature. Please feel free to come to us with your families, the sick, injured, or just fretful little ones. We will do all we can to help. The only price we ask is the gift of your friendship. Perhaps one day when this land is free of the tyranny, blah, 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 we'll make an abbey. Anyway, it seems like at least from from the loam hedge perspective, it's not so much a, a religious order as it is a an order of you know mutual aid, and I think that that carries down pretty well to red. God was the friends that we made along the way, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I think is cool. They don't really need to back it up with very much. It was it was really like left wide open in Redwall, and so you know it was a little bit confusing. But here. It's more of an order based on a philosophy than uh, an actual religious practice, which I think is yeah, yeah. yeah there's not a metaf- there's not really a metaphysics behind it. Although we do get more metaphysics in this book, right? We have the dark forest, capital That's D, right. capital F, which shows yep. up a bunch. There is a place people go to when they die. Yep, yep. Hell never mentioned in this book. Dark forest mentioned lots of times, and it's and I think and it is kind of negative, right? This is kind. This is this is not a like Christian afterlife. This is like a, a sort of like a classical afterlife where it's not pleasant for most people. Right? I was picturing it more like uh, the idea of Hades in uh, like Greek mythology, where it's it's the land that you go to when you die, and probably there are different like aspects of it depending on what kind of life you lived that's not that's never explicit in the text but that's kind of how i pictured it like they talk about good people who have gone to dark forest and it's you know they're sad that they're gone but dark forest is you know a a good a, a just fitting reward for them whereas when bad people die it's like oh they're gonna be waiting for you in dark forest yeah it's sort of i mean like it feels like the christian purgatorium where like they're just it's a, just a place that you mill around until somebody comes and lets you into the other place <laughs> if you're good. Yeah, yeah, which is a little like the classical, like like some of the class, classical, like the, like the, like the Greek dynamics yeah. where you've got like what's it like Odysseus just like seeing his his, his mother, right? Yeah, um, Tiresias like, brings back a whole bunch of people for him. <laughs> yeah, and they're all just kind of like hanging around, and it's not it's, it's not like good. It's not 
bad. They're not burning. No. Uh, but they don't, they're not, like, having a, a great time down there is the thing. Well, actually, no, there is, uh, and maybe it's, maybe it's just, at the very end of the book, after Martin has fought Sarmina, and he is laying there mortally wounded, not mortally, but just, just on the edge of mortally wounded, mm-hmm. um, he is either hallucinating, or he's actually having a conversation with Board of the Fighter at, on the outskirts of Dark Forest, and he's there... And he's practicing swordsmanship, and he's, like, fighting rats again with his old oh, friend, right. Board the Fighter. Yeah, there's an Elysian Fields. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. The yeah. Fields that makes Elysian. sense to me. Mm-hmm. I think that really fits with the whole, like, the whole framing of the book. There's a lot of, like, honor and, like, warrior spirits. Um, and it's interesting as well, because, like, Martin at this point is not a supernatural figure. He has no supernatural powers. It's very, it's very clear where he has his swordsmanship abilities from. They are not super powered. He is not this like. Invincible. He's not even that great. He's not Achilles. He's no demi. He's not like a demigod. He's just like a, a mouse. He's better than everybody else when he shows up in Mossflower. But when he gets to Salamandastron, he's routinely getting his ass kicked by the hares and the badger that he's like practicing. Yeah. With. Yeah, and he and he has no like spiritual powers. He's not like a a metaf- he he doesn't engage with the metaphysics at all, except I guess in that in that end scene. And it's right. interesting to think about that transition between this and Redwall, where he is kind of like this demigod figure who is actively influencing the passage of events. And does does this get is is this more like illuminating? Does does this illuminate the metaphysics at all? Not really. <laughs> no. I don't think so. <laughs> But it is interesting to think about. There's some interesting race stuff uh, going on in this book. Not not amongst the Woodlanders the way that we saw uh, as much in, in Redwall. Uh, but there, there are a couple of things that I, I picked out. Um, starting off with Chib, who when the suggestion, Gonf makes the suggestion, we need a spy, let's hire Chib. And one of the things that one of the people in Brock Hall says is he's not one of us. And that's that's an interesting line because it could be considered as as Sam was saying earlier, he's more of a mercenary, he's kind of on the outside of the the quorum, but also he's the only bird who joins that crew. And you know, the Mossflower the 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 rodents of the Redwall world tend to have sort of a distrust of birds anyway. They're usually either adversarial or just completely apart it's interesting because like ecologically a robin fills a very similar place as a mouse right yeah sure and and that that (laughs) that is to some extent the distinction between like sort of this like the speciation and like where, where we draw the lines between villain and good guy is has a lot to do with their sort of ecological position whether they're like predators um or they are prey and, and herbivorous or like the otters if they don't feed on even though they are otter, otters are definitely predators they don't feed on other mammals right that's like right. yeah a big distinction um and a robin fills that same spot unlike the eagle and hawks um but they are different the swans right? yeah more like the sparrows right um yeah. who are seen as like distinctly different and at least initially kind of untrustworthy but do eventually like come together. Yeah. So and and I kind of without that line, I think I would have treated Chib as being sort of sparrow like in the sense that he's just 
he's separate. He's one of the flyers. I mean, that's that's a that's a distinction that the moles make all the time. Uh, them them girt bird bags, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, I don't think that's the moles being racist against birds. They just don't like to leave the earth. So to them, it's just this completely foreign concept, flying. Um, but there there is that distinction between flyers and the the earthbound. Well, yeah, like there's even that part where they're talking to Mask about like the different animals that he can pretend to be. And he's very good at all of them. But when it comes to birds, he's like, yeah, that's one that I'm working on. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't really gotten there yet. <laughs> Some minor physical obstacles. That's right. We didn't even mention Mask as oh, part of yeah. our thing because he's just sort of a... He's sort of a side character. He's he's there for a little while and then dies heroically. But um, amazing uh, little aside of this this otter who's a master of disguise and keeps himself apart from everybody else, even though he's Skipper's brother, uh, I think literal brother, like they were, uh, you know, from the same litter. Yeah, but he lost his tail. And I think this is seen as like a very clear separate. This is sort of a mark of his separation. Right, so he's tailless, yeah. and so he doesn't feel. And I, I would say symbolically, he is tailless, and so not a real otter. He is less an otter than the other otters, and so he is kind of in this in-between state. So he can change his tail, he can change his other signifiers. Sure. But yeah, and this is why he lives apart. He's not one of the other otters. Yeah, which goes back to our earlier comments on you know the interesting role that uh, like disability or like different bodily ability mental ability plays in this book well i thought it was interesting because like uh in certain folklore oh no you know what it's a it's it's alaskan um indigenous alaskans uh believe that otters have the ability to shapeshift um they can also take like the appearance of men um and other uh, otter creatures and creatures that are like similar to otters, yeah. um, and that's called the kishtaka. <laughs> Interesting. That's fascinating. So I, yeah, I thought it was cool that there was like a like it wasn't just a hey otters are really neat and like maybe they're you know they can. I I thought it was cool that like I think he's drawing from something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that's that's really interesting. Well, and obviously the you know plot relevant, the thing that the mask turns himself into is a fox. So foxes just uniformly evil, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've just decided that foxes are are always bad. I mean, to the extent of them having a shared ritual of villains, yeah. which is like a a left handed, a sinister handshake, and a little thing that they recite about how they're going to rob each other, like as soon as the other one looks away, which I think is adorable. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Pretty, that's pretty charming. <laughs> I mean, they're mercenaries; they don't they don't have allegiance to anybody. That rules. <laughs> yeah, no, I I love I love the foxes in it. Um, I think that it is interesting because I think Matt, there's not a lot of pretending. In these books, I think, and, it, and pretending hmm. is, is generally like a sign of villainy, like they yeah. like like duplicit like like, like long term duplicity um, is not certainly not a heroic. Certainly not seen as a heroic thing, and, yeah. it's, and it's interesting with Mask because it, the, the Jake's really feels like he has to emphasize that this is not Mask. Mask has this internal monologue where he's like, "Ugh, this is so evil. <laughs> Everything <laughs> here is so evil." <laughs> um, just, just to like really, really rub in that he's not, he is, 
He may be pretending to be a fox, but he is yeah. not a fox. He is he's absolutely disgusted at the like the state of Kotir when he goes in there and uh just horrified at uh Fortunata, our vixen, the you know, again you've got your like Romani coated uh like fox. <laughs> yeah. Herbalist, possible seersayer. Well, the the healers are I mean like for the good guys, it's the abbess. I was Jermaine, and then, mm-hmm. like, so there has to be some sort of, like, medical infrastructure within the yeah. evil side. It can't just sure. be, like, them dying of their wounds all the time like it was with yeah. Courtney the Scourge. Um, so I guess that's just where they decided to bring it from. It does say at one point that uh, after one of the big skirmishes with the Woodlanders, all of the soldiers of Kotir go back and are just taking care of their wounds as best as possible. So, I mean, they certainly don't have anything like an infirmary and it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, Fortunata. I think she's dead by that point. And and what a death, just amazing. Uh, Lady Amber corners her in the woods with uh, like 10 archers, 10 archers to kill this one fox. It's a little extra, but also we have this little extra. But also we have this whole buildup with her talking to Mask and Mask being like, Again, constantly do this eternal monologue of, oh, she's so evil. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, all oh, this murder she wants to do. I hate her. And, of course, leads her into a trap. Sam and I were talking before we started recording that there are some fantastic deaths in this. Yes. Uh, we, we already talked about uh, Bane the Fox dying, soaring through the air with Argulor. You know, that uh, I, I was reminded of the that dinosaur fossil where it's like, the Triceratops horn through a Velociraptor's ribcage and the <laughs> Velociraptor's foot is jabbed up into the, the Triceratops' neck, you know. Uh, you imagine that's how they found them. Um, there's that one. And-, and I think it's it's really interesting because you can tell that, that Jake's was like, wow, this is a really badass way for two people to die. Let's do <laughs> right. twice in this book. Yeah. Um, so and- there's that one. There's a, yeah, there's Fortunata. There's a... There's the death of, I think it's Clud, the captain of the guard, uh, when he fights Skipper of the Otters, and Skipper ends up throwing him up into the air, and he comes down on, and there's this great line that, you know, otter javelins are pointed at both ends. Um, Just, ooh, yeah, that's great. Very cool. Oh, the death of uh, the the sea rat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the badger, he, which, right. is, which is the same as the the eagle, in that they they, they clutch each other at right. the end. Um, and God, and, and the badger is so is so awesome. This this uh this like broad this this like sort of Zweihander wielding badger just like yeah. tearing through the ranks of the sea rats. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like his his final words that they hear like ah is it Ripfang is Ripfang the the sea rat uh, the pirate whatever the pirate so. he's like ah pirate captain my old friend come see I embrace you and <laughs> like the last thing they see is him hugging the sea rat to his like studded uh, plate metal um, to to squeeze the life out of him just yeah. super badass it's great we have a lot of jewels we have a lot of um people on opposite sides are these different dynamics like this this real like, one-on-one dynamics we have like the gloomer and the, the pike we have um like you said the otter and clud the skipper and clud we have boar we have um we have martin of course at the end um and this 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 repeats and they're all great honestly i i yeah. i'm a big fan of this of this dynamic the, the real mono on mono it's dialectics <laughs> yes yeah there's like a the in the very first clash between 
Sarmita and the Cotton. Like, Lady Amber is, like, standing on a tree, and she has a javelin, and she throws it at Zarmina, and she picks up a ferret that's standing next to her, and she holds it up to- she holds up the ferret so that the ferret takes the blow instead, and it's dead, and she's holding onto it, and she's yelling, like, orders at everybody else, and, like, Lady Amber has, like, another one in her hand, and she's going to, like, possibly try to throw it at her, and so that's when they decide to retreat, and I thought that was, like- that was like the first like very significant death in the book. And it really struck me. I was like, wow, he really got it together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he, she just like throws him to the ground. Like she's been like waving his dead body around for a minute. And then she just let it just lets it thunk on the ground and walks away. Yeah, it's great. I mean, he, he really goes in for the like illustrative, the illustrative deaths showing the, the heroism or the villainy, you know, depending on on who's involved. Yeah, yeah, and, and and like I like I think I said at the start, it's just really striking how how fully realized the techniques, like the techniques that I think we see in so many of the the later books, which is like these two storylines that break apart very early, right? In Redwall, and I actually I I had misremembered this, but it's like over half of the way through the book before. Martin actually sets out, or before Matthias actually sets out, um, to the to retrieve the sword. Yeah. So most of the book is like a single plot line, and mm-hmm. then it splits. Whereas here he starts it very early because, like, it's a it's just such like a class it's such a classic storytelling technique to like keep your reader's attention when you're bouncing between these two action path sure. storylines um, yeah. that do like very flawlessly come together with the flooding plot line in the boat um, at at the very end. And it, and I and I, if I remember correctly, this is just such like a common theme through all of his books, where he like has this heroic adventuring party um, going off and doing these sort of like solo small group stuff, where they like battle through all of these like strange foreign landscapes, sure. and then you have sort of the at home problem of like management and administration and like more strategic warfare mm-hmm. and both uh, of these defensive. Sort of uh, like war of attrition stuff until the until the quest is concluded and they come back with whatever they set out to find. Yeah, exactly, and it's and it's just really it's just really really fully realized here that he's yeah. just like he's sort of worked out the building blocks of his story, which is like sort of quest prophecy and then all this like administration and planning on the back end. The sort of yeah. like slightly more democratic, like all of these people trying to work together to work out a plan to defeat the enemy at the same time as the prophecies running. Um, on the sidelines. I, I made a note in my notebook, you know, the, the last episode we were talking about how, you know, the sword was just the way for Matthias to, you know, make all of these allies. Whereas in this one, it really does seem like the real friends were the sword we made along the way. <laughs> yeah. The sword yes. is really cool in this one. It's <laughs> a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was awesome that, like, get, I, you love to see when, like, legendary things get reforged. You gotta love oh, it. Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love Blade that was broken, baby. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I love to see it. Is, like you know, in a volcano. I mean, come on. Oh yeah. Oh, it's so good. Mete- meteor iron. Another yeah. classic yeah. fantasy trope. That's right. Because because yeah. the metal is special, right? The mm-hmm. Meteor iron is 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 definitely special metal. Um, <laughs> so this is, this isn't just yeah. any sword. 
it takes him it takes Bor all night to heat the metal so that he can work it and yeah. and while he forges it he recites the name of every warrior he can think of so you've got this uh sort of like runic sort of incantation going on with this sword and um that's why it was able to last for a hundred years up on a weather vane apparently oh yeah so this this is a special <laughs> sword in, in a sense it, it becomes more special between the <laughs> between the books it it like it's it's really interesting because Gingivir is like this. This is like a fine sword. It's okay, yeah. Um, in 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 Redwall, but in this book, it's like no. This is like a meteor iron sure. sword forged by the greatest badger warrior in the heart of the mountain. Um, although although very similar to the the conversation that Matthias has with uh, Julian Gingivir, um, Bor has the same talk with Martin and he's like, remember a sword is only as special as the person who's wielding it. Like this is a very nice sword, but again, (laughs) it all has to do with, you know, what's, what's inside you. That's what makes it, you know, whether it's going, going to be a just or an unjust weapon. Yeah. I mean, the sword was sort of actually plot wise, far less significant than, than the boat. Um, Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) They could have managed, they could have managed without the sword, but the boat is the boat. The boat was essential. Well, I think that's a good place for us to jump into. So I, I had asked our listeners uh, if they had any extra questions or observations on the book that they wanted us to talk about on the show. And we got some really good uh, submissions here. So uh, I'm just going to jump in kind of randomly uh, while we're on the, the topic of uh, Salamandistron and, uh, you know, the the sword forging and the fighting the pirates and the ship and everything. Toucan Monkey AML asks us, is this book's Rip Fang the same Rip Fang as the one in Lord Brocktree? And why is Jake's insistence that they are different people bullshit? Uh, <laughs> Toucan, uh, we have not read Lord Brocktree yet. So when we read that one, please resubmit your, your question and we'll get to it. Uh, we'll, we'll figure that out for you. I feel like there's a core problem, which is there's only so many ways you can combine Fang, Claw, <laughs> yeah. Terror... Um, and, and yeah, just that's right. too vaguely negative. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the naming conventions, you know, we talked about that uh, last episode also, and, like, who was our favorite uh, our favorite villain name. Um, I, I noticed that uh, among the squirrels and the otters, they tend to go for uh, single-syllable, very nature-related names. You've got, like, bark and spring and stream and... Uh, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. That that was more that was more pronounced certainly in this book than it was in in Redwall. You know, whereas like the mice have like regular human names. Yes, yeah. some like, of them do, have, and then other ones are like Brig and like like yeah. All of the girls have flower names um, if they're <laughs> mice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, Melly, I, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit uh, while we're talking about uh, while we're talking about female characters. Um, so the love interest in Redwall is Cornflower, mm-hmm. and the love interest in this one, who's Gaunt's love interest, right. is Columbine. Yeah. And I thought Columbine was much better fleshed out uh, as a character than, than Cornflower ever was. Well, yeah. And then also, like, I mean, somewhere between Redwall and Mossflower, like, Jake's got a little bit woke when it came to gender, because you have more female characters that are more complex and like, yeah. is it, it's not retconning so much as it is like, um, explaining that like, you know, it doesn't have to be an abbot at, in charge of, of this, you know, quasi-religion. Um, 
it can be an abbess as well that can be the, sure. the leadership there um you know the squirrels can be run by queens that are you know fairly benevolent and i mean i think lady amber was also a complex character um and there's and super badass too i mean she's one of the the better warriors in the whole book yeah and she's not just like you know sort of large and sexless and just like very competent she's you know a queen <laughs> right um to some degree like so she has she's not the same as like constance and redwall right um and also like you know the the little love narrative that they have it's cute <laughs> and um columbine isn't you know this inert character that just solely exists to help the narrative along when it needs to be and to fill like specifically um feminine roles like you know she does help with healing and cooking and stuff like that but she also she offers suggestions and advice and <laughs> yeah um yeah she and she and abbot Germain have a great scene when uh sarmina has taken her entire army out in the forest and they're like why don't we just go dick around in Cotier a little bit and like see if we can get some ideas? And so uh, Columbine and a Abbas Germain are standing in Sarmina's bedroom, and uh, they're both teasing each other because both of them have become very um, not warlike, but but very tactically aware. And the Abbas is teasing uh, Columbine because you know Columbine's like, well, our our forces are spread thin a little bit here, but like maybe if we consolidate, and she's like, where did this tactician come from? This is great, <laughs> so, you know. Right. So it like very very handily passes the Bechdel test. Yeah, right. it yes. does. Yeah. yeah. There's like a there's a bunch of like showdowns, and there's and you have this like the the multi there's like two amber Sarmina showdowns, right? Right. And then you have like the first javelin one, and then you have that one where she's literally like back down, or we will kill you. Or, like, right. release them or we will shoot you. We have, like, all these mm -hmm. people point with arrows pointed at your heart. Yep. Um, it's, it's great. Yeah. It I was totally, yeah. And also, like, you know, Sarmina as a female character is, I mean, she's rich and complex and has a very interesting, like, interior life that we see a lot of. Um, and, you know, I don't think that even though, you know, even though she is a girl villain and a lot... I, her villainy doesn't necessarily manifest in a specifically like feminine way other than that. Like, you know, the whole thing about how poison is a woman's weapon. Sure. Um, mm. And that's only, well, she first. also purrs. She purrs a lot to, you she's know, when like, she's trying to like, when she's trying to bring somebody into her fold or get them to do something without them knowing that she's manipulating them. She's always purring to them, yeah, which but she's is a also very, yeah. well, yeah, but I mean, she didn't have to be a cat, is my point. I, I think it's, I think it is really interesting in the books how the villains thus far have so much more interiority than, yeah, you know, in that like, and, and that even even some of the minor villains, like in this one, you have like Bane, who also has like these like complex situations, like this complex terrain he's navigating within. Like, am I going to take over this this thing? Like, what what decisions am I making? You have Ashleg, who actually makes this like very this sort of unique decision to be like uh i'm out this is getting too this is getting too right. dodgy for me <laughs> yeah in fact and and from the from the mailbag steel dragon down asked does anyone else want to know what happened to ash leg after he left cotier like i i hope he found the nice friends and quiet life he was looking for yeah which... <laughs> you know maybe maybe he ended up like ginger bear where he just became a farmer <laughs> yeah 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 but I, just, yeah I don't know i liked i liked that you know, a cat is 
specifically like you know a coated female animal um but i i thought that the the nature of like the cat being the main villain but also like you know the a cat having a just the duality of what a cat could possibly be i thought was really interesting like as sure. the villain itself but also like as gingiver is able to you know be good so in this world like where we have this this stark dichotomy between like mice are good and rats are bad and there's the cat and the cat can go basically either way right actually i want to i want to stay on that theme uh, because uh, apropos to Twitter, we had a lot of cat-related questions. Okay. Uh, so one of them that we got was from Histosol King, who asked uh, if we could talk a bit about how Verdaga is sort of a more benign warlord and the differences between him and Sarmina. Um, that, you know, it, obviously we'll, we'll get on to uh, Gingivir, uh as part of this discussion, but I think that that point that was raised earlier in the show is really interesting that Verdaga came in and he conquered Mossflower and everybody lives in his little feudal kingdom, but things didn't really start getting bad until his health started to fail and Sarmina started running more of the kingdom and, and her being the, the, the really bad cat in this family of cats. If this were a liberal podcast that politically interprets these books, I would say that Verdaga is Reagan and okay. Sarmina is Donald Trump. <laughs> God. But I'm not going to say that because I'm like, not a no, bad you know person you and I'm not going to hurt you. you. Say that. I almost started us off today with like, okay, so which of the characters is Bernie Sanders? Which of the characters is Pete Buttigieg? But I knew that Millie was going to just hang up that's, and yeah. not do the podcast a, with that'd us. That would be an appropriate so. reaction, I think. <laughs> Man, I do think it is interesting because there is actually a kind of more explicitly political lens to the oppression um, of like like Verdauga, of like Verdauga and Sarmina. In that it's not just like Clooney, who's just this purely destructive force, right? Clooney is coming in to destroy um, in this kind of, it is it is a moment. It is not like a continued structure. Whereas right. in, with Sarmina, it's very explicitly like stated at a couple of points, like they don't farm. They don't do the work. They just take from the ones who do the work. We do not sow in yeah. uh, Game of so Thrones that, language. And yeah. so it's more like it, it does get a little bit more into like the process of sort of like an aristocratic, like an aristocratic class or like an oppressive class, which is reaping the benefits, reaping the rewards of those who are actually working. Right. right. There's, there's a, there's a part where, um, and I can't remember exactly where this happens, but, um, the, the moss flower creatures retreat and Sarmina, uh, is looking over, you know, she's standing with, um, her army and they're like we won they're all gone and she's like no this is land that i already owned and so there's like a very tangible sense of property and ownership that happens here and i thought that coupled with the idea of like there's literal slaves in this book oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) there's a slave liberation that happens in this book like so so the sense of of this world and uh you know what ownership is what it means how long it can last um how uh ownership of property transfers um, that's much more tra- like fleshed out in these books than it it was in Redwall, and, and in terms of like what the political dynamics based on property actually look like. Yeah, and as I recall, we get a lot more of that um, as the 
as the books continue, I think, uh, you know, because there is a prequel book that's Martin the Warrior, and it has to do with him fighting these sea rats and other, you know, slavers. So there's there's a lot more of that that we're going to we're going to get into. Um, keeping on our, our theme of, of cats here as we go through the mailbag, Bellardian Gorse asked us, and this was a, a question close to my heart because I raised the, the topic on our last episode. Given the campness of Julian Gingivere, a book earlier, can we assume his ancestor Sarmina is a gay icon? I think she absolutely could be. I mean, she's pretty she's pretty fabulous. She's yeah. Not, she's not... She doesn't... I don't know. It's, it's, it's really interesting, actually, in this book, in that both Sarmina and Martin are totally non-sexual beings in how they engage with the world. It's yeah, not like it's not like Clooney, who is non-sexualized, versus Matthias, who actually does end up in a relationship. It's like, actually, right. these two, like, warrior creatures are totally... Have, like, no... They don't have a, they don't have a mother, right? Right. It's, it's interesting. Um, there's, there's like yeah, no, that's right, because Martin, as far as the story that we know, he was raised by his father. He's got a dad, um, and they met in a cave... Uh, him, mm-hmm. and his uh, mom yeah. was like like Luke the warrior and like all the warriors just sort of live in caves and then rove around being warriors um, and like, reproduce, reproduce asexually they like butt off <laughs> one could assume uh, which is the same with Sarmina like she yeah. doesn't have a mother in, in, in play um, right yeah there was no queen before mm-hmm. her yeah never even mentioned yeah. uh, but she is she is pretty um I mean, if you were going to pick a, a gay icon, I think that you could do worse than Sarmina. She, she kind of comes off as like sort of like a Maleficent sort of character. Um, yeah. I mean, she's she's constantly like flexing her claws and like tearing up her, you know, she gets upset and she tears up all the tapestries in her bedroom. Well, and the description of her armor is also really interesting. Oh, yeah. Like she has a bejeweled helmet that has holes for her ears, which I thought was oh, so yeah. cute. Oh, yeah. It's and badass. Then, like the... Uh, the thousand emerald eyes I, and how like you know she's actually oh, yeah. wearing like armor that has like tons of emerald eyes like all over it like you know you've got these really quite fabulous visuals uh, oh yeah she's like by far the most visual I think the most visually striking well I, I like both her and Clooney are both so like visually realized yeah like, oh Jake loves his villains like the art like like both of them armored Clooney with like his dramatic barbed tail which is whipping around Sarmina mm-hmm. with her like claws sheathing and unsheathing like at, like related to her emotions and her like bejeweled armor this like really striking helmet yeah I, I love it <laughs> Well, and, and on the topic of uh, Sarmina, this was one, Millie, that you actually engaged with on the on the Redwall Twitter. This was from Toucan Monkey AML, who asked, How notable is it that Sarmina is basically the only big bad to ever beat the hero, Martin no less, in fair combat? And what gender implications, if any, does this have? Yeah, um, so, like, getting back to what I said earlier on the topic of, of how Jake's is better about gender in this book um i you know the gender implications are that this is it's it's a more egalitarian world um than you know we were led to believe in in other ways based on his writing prior to this and you know that the the 
gender equity is actually like it's not so much present as it is like you know you could you could read into her as the sort of like you know uh liberal feminist like girl power sort of type like <laughs> you know she took what was hers <laughs> she's 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 she, she didn't she's wait around Hillary. for men to give it to her she uh, she saw what was in front of her and <laughs> she decided to take it she didn't want anybody standing in her way which yes led to a paranoid episode but like I mean, come on, <laughs> at least she had that power. Um, and then imagine if, you know, she was able to continue ruling, how fabulous that would be. I thought that, you know, it's it didn't really feel like it was playing to that whole curl power idea. But, um, you know, the more that I thought about it, I was like, you could definitely take this and twist it into that. <laughs> and it's great. And the final fight between Sermina and Martin, I mean, they really do basically fight to a stalemate. Uh, both of them, I think you're supposed to assume, have been, uh, again, like just on the edge of mortally wounded. But yeah, she freaks out and runs into a lake. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's only one sort of like very specifically gendered um, like division of power in the book. And that's the, 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 the badger inheritance. Right. Right. Where there's like meant to be a male badger ruling, which is kind of just accepted. And that that I think is like the only... The only like falling point of the book, because otherwise we have like these these like two females, right, like, queens yeah. and rulers. We have, like you said, all these dynamics. Well, and and three really, if you're going to count uh, Bella of Brackhall, who, while she she doesn't really exercise a leadership role in this, she 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 sort of does the same thing that uh, Abbot Mortimer does in Redwall, where she's sort of the mm-hmm. the person who kind of holds the group together and kind of presides over yeah. their meetings. Um, more of a more of a president than a ruler, really. But then you have Abbas Germain also, who is the abbess of the Lomehedge mice who show up. So yeah, lots of lots of great female leadership in this. Yeah, and this, and it's it's interesting because like the reality of the world doesn't bear out the sort of stated like tradition of like aristocratic inheritance that's suggested by the way that badgers talk about the ownership of the like the mansion. And they're right. like, there should be a badger ruling here. And that actually, no, it's this, this seems totally unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely fine. Um, I also liked how, you know, like the Brock Hall is supposed to be, I mean, it's a gigantic mansion, but also everyone lives there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but- Although they, they only live there once it's the emergency, once they yeah. take in all of the, all of the yeah. woodlanders. I, I made a note that was just, um, Bella of Bourgeois. Yeah, and I think what's really a really interesting thing is is that is both is like the the masculine depth that's that's shown here, and that not only do we have like Gingerveer, we have the cat who is not a warrior, not a fighter, but is not shown as sort of like less like less than because of this. And we also have right. the old we have the badger who has died before the start of the book, who went out to fight and was killed by by Verdalga, mm-hmm. right? Because he like was a farmer and a builder. And his role was not a warrior. So there's like a, a, a complex space of masculinity. Not not that complicated. But there's I mean, like more of but there's more of it than just strength. There's more to it than just strength and that, that makes someone like valuable or important. Um, yeah. yeah, the dignity of serfdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like there's dignity in work as well as in war. Yeah, but yeah, and I, I would I would throw uh, Gonf into that too as a, a different picture of the masculinity that's presented in this book because he also he does do some fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does like his little whippy dagger thing when they're fighting the sea rats, but for the most part, he's a 
He's a bard. He's mm-hmm. a singer. He's a yeah, storyteller. He's definitely like that guy that just hangs out at the coffee shop all the time and will sometimes bust out his guitar <laughs> with nobody asking. Like, <laughs> yes, dude. After after like a certain point in time, like you know, I you'd read what would happen and then he would sing it, and I'd be like, "Come on, dude." <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't need this. I've got enough of this. Put your guitar away. Well, we've got we've got one final request or or, or comment here. This is from Ten Thousand Hamsters, who asks, "Is there ever actually any moss with flowers growing out of it, or is that just the name of the no, forest?" No, there are moss, moss and flowers. Has, but also, moss has these is kind of flowering, right? Well, also, you've got the river moss. So, I mean, the river moss encircles mm. this entire territory. So, in a sense, the country is the flower of the river moss. Good one. That's okay. That's it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, thank you everybody who sent in your your comments and questions. Uh, we're going to do this again. This is great. It's so nice to be able to engage with the audience that way. Uh, I think we're at the point where uh, we're going to let Melly take over and let us know what's going on with the food in this book because there was a lot of food in this book. Yeah. Uh, I- including the fact. Did you guys notice that Martin and Gonfin Dinny? cannot seem to keep track of their food. Like, they would gather up a bunch of food and then something would happen and they'd lose all their food. And then a couple minutes later, they'd get a bunch of food and then a few minutes later, they'd lose all of their Listen, food that's just And that, this happens that's, like three times. That's an allegory for um, scarcity Economic culture. Economic boom and bust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and really what we're working towards here is Redwall, which is a post-scarcity world. But, okay, so, like, the food in this book, obviously, he steps it up. Um, one of my favorite things about reading Jake's about food is that he is not a cook um he has ideas Uh, about what food could be like um and so for now could i could i drop in just for a second because one thing that i've learned about jakes is that he wrote these books specifically uh because he had been working with blind children and so he wanted to write stories that engaged all of the senses um, and specifically, it comes out in smells and tastes when he describes the food. And I think that's a really neat little note to know about the guy that the, one of the reasons we get so much food as these stories progress is because he wanted there to be, you know, substantive sense based descriptions uh, that weren't just visual. Yeah. And like, I'm able, I, I think that he's really adept at, at writing what food could possibly taste like and um you know the different he's he's good at naming ingredients and talking about like what the flavor profiles are supposed to do and um you know just he's able to use adjectives around food really well and so it's 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 pretty easy to like reverse engineer what a recipe could actually look like and um for this one i mean they're just talking about food constantly mostly it's like just the candied chestnuts in cream um you've got a lot of yellow cheeses um, you've got cheese plates, you've got a, the, a description of a beautiful apple pie. Um, but I think that the main, um, dinner course, uh, created by Goody Stickle, who is a queen and I love her. Um, we stand a queen, I, we stand a hedgehog stand queen. stand a hedgehog queen. Um, she, you know, puts together this really big feast that has like herbed cheese and celery with, with spring radishes sliced on it. Mm. Um, there's a sweet barley cake with um, mint frosting that could be interesting. So I might, I don't know. Uh, that's something that I'm definitely considering dealing with. But the the main dish that 
that's in it is um, the deeper than ever pie, uh, <laughs> which has root vegetables, beets, potatoes, turnips, beans. I and, think they yeah, mentioned beans. at one point. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking that we could do like you know a nice white bean. It'll be kind of dry, so I think that maybe like I'd use dill and cream, like maybe sour cream mm. to have it hold together. Mm. And it's deeper than ever, so I'm, I think I might get like a flower pot <laughs> mm. and bake it inside of that. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. brilliant! Make it real tall, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, basically, what I come up with, but the a lot of the descriptions are more coherent than um, <laughs> what happened last time. <laughs> Um, and there just wasn't that much to work with in Ridwall. Right. I mean, he really went for it in this. Here, there's like tons of beautiful desserts, so many scones, cheese scones. Um, and then, like, obviously, all of these people are wasted constantly. Um, the strawberry cordial sounded really good, so I might give that an attempt. Um, and dandelion wine. Yeah, the uh, I, I was really interested in some of the stuff the otters made. Also, they have their um, like hot root soup, hot shrimp, yeah, shrimp hot root soup. The but then they also soup. make some sort of yeah, some sort of cordial that is also spicy. Mm, I am my I gotta say my my vegetarian heart is very excited for this one. It's wonderful, <laughs> honestly. Like this it's one. this is this is what my diet is already. Like <laughs> I, I already am a pescatarian. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Wallflowers, um, if you aren't already subscribed to our Patreon, uh, remember that every month people at the $2 level get a new candied chestnut recipe uh, original from Melly, and $5 subscribers get a full, uh, and when I say a full recipe for a dish in the Redwall books, you would not believe what Melly worked up uh, for the last one. Like a full four-page spread with cooking instructions and pictures. These are not recipes we're giving you. These are uh, th- these are works of art. So please consider hitting us up. Uh, we're on Patreon at the Redwall Pod, and of course, if you're listening to us, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Also, uh, I'm always on there making Redwall jokes with people, so we're we're on there at the Redwall Pod as well. And I think that wraps up our discussion of Moss Flower. Thank you, Melly. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. This was it's, been fun. A, it's been a pleasure. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we'll be and and thanks again to everybody who uh, submitted things in the mailbag. We're definitely going to do that again in the future. So we um, reading uh, yeah, everybody, bust out your copies of Matimio. We're going to be back in the uh, back in the present day. Matimio or Matimio? Ah, That's see, we, we'll have to we'll have to oh, run another people are going to yell at us. It's going to be great on the Twitter. <laughs> I love I love that. That's the best part of my life. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next month. Yeah, bye.